from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. On this episode of Newt's World, it has been almost 50 years since President Richard Milhouse Nixon resigned from the presidency. Nixon normalized U.S. relations with China, and by so doing, he encircled the Soviets and made certain they knew they were on the losing side of the Cold War. Nixon signed the first major strategic arms limitation treaty with the Soviets, which involved real cuts done out of mutual respect and fear. Nixon made peace possible in the Middle East and saved the children of Israel by assuring that Israel would not be defeated in the Yom Kippur War. Nixon ended the war in Vietnam and brought home the prisoners. Nixon said he would leave us a generation of peace, and he did. My guest today was a speechwriter and friend of President Nixon and says he misses him every day. And he's joining me to discuss his new book, The Peacemaker, Nixon, the Man, President, and My Friend. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Ben Stein. He is a writer, actor, economist, and lawyer. He writes the Dreams column for Newsmax magazine, Ben Stein's Diary for the American Spectator, and is the host of the World According to Ben Stein podcast. His comedic role as the economics teacher in the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off has been ranked as one of the 50 most famous scenes in movie history. He was the co-host of the Emmy Award-winning Win Ben Stein's Money. He's also the New York Times best-selling author or co-author of over 30 books. Ben, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. You're very kind. Thank you very much. When did you first hear about Richard Nixon, and when did he first sort of enter your life? I would say when I was about seven years old, and I lived in Silver Spring, Maryland, right outside Washington, D.C. We lived there because even though my father had quite a good job, extremely good job, Jews were not allowed to live in the nicest neighborhoods in Washington, like Spring Valley or Wesley Heights. And some nice developers had taken some raw land out in Maryland and built some developments that were 
by no means fancy, but perfectly adequate. And we lived there, and we were perfectly happy living there. And, and, and I might add, every single day that I woke up and thought, holy smoke, Benji, you are in America, was a great, great day. Benji, you're in America. You're not in Germany. You're not in Poland. You're not in Russia. You are in America, and it's all gravy after that. And I noticed also, because it was described brilliantly, that you had a brand new Magnavox TV. I remember those, those really big wooden cabinets. Yes, blonde wood. But you ended up watching the House on american Activities Committee on television at a young age? Yes, 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 with my mother and father. And my mother, I'm positive that you must have met her at some function in Washington. Mildred Stein, she was a extremely militant anti-communist. She was probably one of the few Jews in Montgomery County who was a fan of Joe McCarthy. And she brought me up on that, that anti-communism was mother's milk to me, sir. And I happened to live next door to a family who were well communists, and they had a different view of the world from mine, but they were still very good neighbors. Their child turned out to be Carl Bernstein, a quite famous so-called journalist. And I loved him a lot, loved his parents a lot. But he and I were on different sides of the fence, but we were still good friends. And that's the way America was in those days. You could be wildly on the other side of the fence from the other guy or gal, and you could still be friends. That's not true anymore. This is kind of amazing. I did not know this story. But you end up meeting Richard Nixon when he's vice presidential candidate. How old are you at that point? Yes, I was probably seven years old, and he was campaigning a genuine whistle-stop tour. I don't think they have whistle-stop tours anymore, but they used to have whistle-stop tours. My mother took me up to Silver Spring, Maryland, B&O Railroad Station, and I heard Mr. Nixon give a speech. I thought he did a great job. My neighbors, all kind of left-wingers, thought it was terrible. They couldn't get over the fact that I had gone there and that my mother had lifted me up on her shoulders to see and hear Mr. Nixon. But my parents loved him. They started out loving him. They never stopped loving him. My parents had been Republicans since, basically since there was a Republican Party. I was very, very blessed to have parents who were parents and other ancestors who were born in the United States of America, and they were all Republicans, mostly because Republicans were against alcohol, and our family has always been against alcohol. So there you are. That's wild. So we leap forward, and after eight years as vice president, Nixon is running for president, and you meet him again. Yes, I met him again. I actually met him several times, but this time I met him when he was, I think I met him several times in that campaign, but one of them was at Montgomery Blair High School in Silver Spring, and he was giving another whistle-stop tour, and I thought he gave a great, wonderful speech. And I still remember, although I think I didn't remember time to include it in my book, Mr. Nixon gave us such a good speech that people were demonstrating outside against him. But that was just a sign of what a good speech he gave. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I wish I were old enough to vote for him. But I wasn't, and I didn't vote for him. But I liked him well enough to vote for him when I was younger than 10 years old. I just loved him. He just seemed like my kind of guy. He loved America. He loved the Republican Party. And the Republican Party, as far as I'm concerned, is the main instrument of loving democracy and loving law in the United States of America. And I don't regret one second of loving Nixon. I don't regret it at all. I mean, not at all. And it's, it's interesting, even my wife, the world's finest human being, 
even she, for a time when we were at Yale, did not love Nixon, but I always did. Well, you know, it's interesting. You point out that when he's running for election in 1960, he's talking about something which the modern media has mostly covered up, and that is that the initial steps on ending segregation were being taken by Republicans. And in fact, it was Democrats who were segregationists and Democrats who had for 100 years been oppressing blacks. And that whole story has been turned on its head by the modern media. Exactly right. And if I may mention this really, really, really verboten subject, Delaware was a reliably segregationist state, and Mr. Biden was a reliable voice for segregation. He was a reliable voice against busing, and we just thought he was not that nice a guy where black people were concerned, and we were right about that. And of course, now he's their best friend, and I don't know how that guy also turned around, but it's interesting. The Republican Party was founded, was founded to end the oppression of black people in the United States of America, and that's what it has been ever since. And somehow the media has gotten in there and swirled everything around and gotten it confused. So now the Republicans are the oppressors of black people, which is just nonsense. Republicans have never been the oppressors of black people. Democrats, I don't think the Democrats are necessarily now, although to the extent that they enable people to have feelings of racial animus, I think there they have done extremely bad things and doesn't make me love them. You'd already gotten to meet Nixon, and then he, of course, loses in 60 by a very narrow margin. It was my first campaign as a volunteer. I would say a negative margin. I'm sorry, make your word. It was one of the longest nights of my life because I'd worked very hard. That was the first time I'd really been active as a volunteer. And election night, listening to Illinois slip away and Texas slip away, it was just amazing. Yeah, well, it was amazing because, of course, I think, and of course, I wasn't there, but I, I was watching it. It was amazing because it was so clearly corrupt. It was so clear that Mr. Kennedy, his very rich father, had appeared on the scene with boxes full of money to give to people who would make sure that the count in their area came out pro-Democrat. And so Mr. Nixon lost by a very narrow margin. Had it been today's world, I imagine he would have gone to litigation, but it was not the way things were done in those days. And Mr. Nixon did not want to tear the party apart, especially when we were facing a long decade, which turned out to be a very, very long decade, of resistance to Soviet Bolshevism and the Cold War horrors of machinations of communism. We wanted America to be united, even if it was united under a mistake. And by the way, I don't think Kennedy was a terrible president. Certainly not pro-communist, no doubt about that in my mind. But Mr. Nixon was a real patriot. He sacrificed his career to keep America united. And boy, did he do a good job. But then the Democrats and the media undid it and turned everything to a swirling mass of garbage and lies. And by the way, sir, Mr. Speaker, I like calling you that. It's amazing. It's been 50 years, roughly, a little more, actually, since the Watergate break-in. I still don't understand what it is that the Watergate burglars were supposed to have done. I still don't understand what Mr. Nixon's crimes and misdemeanors were that got him thrown out of office. I still don't understand that, and I was pretty darn close to it all. I don't understand what he did wrong. Before we get that far down the road, when he comes back, having lost and then lost the governorship of California. He ultimately comes back in 68, wins the nomination, and was always remarkably popular with the party base. 
Your dad ends up, through his ties to Milton Friedman, writing economics material for the campaign and then ends up working with the Nixon administration. But apparently your dad actually turned to you and asked whether or not he ought to be actively involved in the Nixon campaign, given everything else that had gone on. And you were adamantly in favor. Adamantly. I mean, I remember my father saying, well, I mean, he's involved with this guy, Murray Chotner, and he does not have the best reputation. And I don't know, do I want to be involved with a guy who was involved with Murray Chotner? And I said, sir, he's our guy. He's our guy. I mean, he's he may not have all perfect friends, but I don't think anybody's running against is going to have all perfect friends. Bear in mind, Mr. Speaker, I loved Hubert Humphrey. He was a great, great man and a kind of man you don't see in the Democrat Party anymore. A thorough progressive in the sense that he really wanted full civil rights for African-Americans and other people of color. But he was not anti-American. He did not slap America in the face. He really believed in America. He was the kind of person that you would be proud to know. A little tiny note about Hubert Humphrey. There are very few of us, I'm sure, who are involved in this event right now that we're doing, who know that Hubert Humphrey from Minnesota was one of the only senators who owned a home in what was not a restricted neighborhood. The restricted neighborhoods in Washington in those days were just a standard upper-class neighborhood, which did not admit Jews. And uh, Mr. Humphrey purposely chose to live in, on a street in Chevy Chase. It was not a particularly fancy street at all. And they chose to live there because it was not segregated against Jews or blacks. No, I think Humphrey, in that sense, lived out his beliefs. I think he was a very sincere person. He was a genuinely great man. Genuinely great man. But in this period, you're a student at Yale, but your dad invites you to a prayer service at the White House. I mean, what was that like? Oh, it was great. It was great. I mean, first of all, I had and still have an incredibly beautiful, charming, friendly wife with a winning smile, as one might say. So I was very proud to be there. I had been to a number of Christian services before because my best friend as a child was a fellow who's prominent in Montgomery County politics named David Skull. And so I'd been to many Christian services, didn't frighten me at all. And I went to the service. I forget who I heard speak, but I think it might have been His Majesty, one might say, at the top of the Christian pyramid, possibly Billy Graham himself. I'm not sure. I do remember that singing was George Beverly Shea, a great, great singer of gospel. Anyway, as we were leaving, Mr. Nixon was shaking hands with his guests. The service had been held in the East Room of the White House. One of his guests was an incredibly beautiful, astoundingly beautiful woman, I could tell, roughly my age. And that was his daughter, Julian. And she smiled at me. She was very friendly to me. She told me that she understood from her father that I was a great fan of dogs. She had several dogs. Would I want some time to join her in taking the dogs for a walk out on the back lawn of the White House? And I, I said, yes, you bet. Anything you want how high and I just she just won my heart over in that instant and I've never except for my wife who's a saint a living breathing saint I've never met a woman that I admired more than Julie Eisner she's just brilliant loyal kind forgiving if you had to draw a picture of the perfect Christian it would be Julie Nixon Eisenhower that's quite a tribute I love her I love her
Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo. Play. You end up coming out of law school at Yale, and then you end up working in the Nixon administration. Yes, I did. Well, I wound up working two places. I worked, wound up working in the so-called War on Poverty, which was the part I was in was headed by a guy named Terry Lenzner, who became a kind of controversial figure. But I also worked for a man at the White House named Bob Brown, who was in charge of monitoring progress in minority affairs. And he was another wonderful guy. And I worked on collecting data about how much progress the Nixon administration made in desegregation and other efforts to create a better life for African-Americans. I'm extremely happy I had the opportunity to do that. We learned a lot about how much progress the Nixon administration made in the desegregating schools, places of work. His progress was simply phenomenal, and nobody ever talked about it to this day. You, sir, are never going to have another person on your show who will talk about it the way I will. You were really inside in that sense. I was inside. I like to think that in a small way I was inside their family. The first time I ever met Mrs. Nixon, enough to have a conversation with her, that is to say, Julie's mother, it was at a birthday party for Julie down at Jack and Helen Drown's house in Palos Verdes. It was for Julie's birthday, and Mrs. Drown said to me, Ma'am, Julie has been talking so much about you, it makes me want to throw up. And I thought, that's a very, very good sense of humor by Julie, very good sense of humor by Mrs. Nixon. 
And I just felt wonderful about it. But I will say that however much animus there was against Mr. Nixon at that time, it's nothing compared to the animus against the Republican Party and against conservatives generally in America right now. In that sense, it really was a very, very different era. Very different era. The hatred, viciousness of the hatred was just off the map. I can remember when I got out of the White House and wanted to write something about my experiences there. There were plenty of people, lots and lots of people who wanted to publish the book. My agent was a a very fine agent. I'm sure you know him, too, since you seem to know everybody. I think you do know everybody. His name was, was and is David Obst. He said, everybody would like to buy this book. I got so busy working for Bob Partley that I didn't have time to do it. But now I think I would have a much harder time doing it. But then there was a much freer press than there is now. You're working really at the heart of the White House. You're working with all of the key players in that period. I mean, that was really quite a tribute to you that so many of these folks were willing to rely on you at really one of the highest, about as high a level as you could get. And you end up being brought in to be a speechwriter. Yes, and I was extremely, extremely grateful for that opportunity. And I just loved it. I can't tell you how much I loved working at the White House. But, sir, Mr. Speaker, bear in mind, as I mentioned before, my father at that time was chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. And he worked two stories above me in the executive office building. And I could go up and see him anytime I wanted. And I could have lunch with him almost any day I wanted. And very few young people get to have, well, fairly young people, get to have lunch with their father every day or almost every day. That was an astounding, astounding gift from God that I could have lunch with my father just about every day. I mean, that's a gift very few people get to have. What was the process like working with Nixon and drafting speeches for Nixon? He himself had been a significant writer in his own right. He was a very good writer. I would get a call from my boss, who was at that time Dave Gergen, and he would say, we want a speech on such and such a subject. Usually it would have something to do with economics or law, because they knew I was an economist and a lawyer by training. And I would go in and get briefed on what they wanted. I would probably talk to someone else under Mr. Nixon, but above yours truly or Dave Gergen, and they would tell me what they wanted me to talk about. I would be happy to do it. I rarely, rarely required much in the way of research because it was generally a fairly broad area of interest that I was dealing with, and I would set to work on doing it. And I was so, sir, I was so happy to be there doing it. I knew the end was going to happen. I knew we were going to get kicked out, and I was going to be really sad about it. But, boy, I was such a happy young man. You can't imagine. Well, you were in the fight. Well put. Very well put, sir. Very well put, Mr. Speaker. I was in the fight, and I felt great about it. I felt absolutely great about it. You know, Ben, I'm curious, given all your experiences, what is one of your fond memories of interacting with President Nixon? Well, several times when I was walking down the halls at the executive office building, which is a beautiful old building with the marble floors, and I was walking down there and ran into Mr. Nixon. I think he was with Ron Ziegler, and I was with my father, and we were on our way over to the White House mess, which was where the high-ranking people like my father could have lunch. And Mr. Nixon asked what we were doing, and I told him. I said, would you like to join us? And he said, no. He said, I'm too busy to do that. He said, but do, do you ever think how lucky you are 
to be able to have lunch with your father. And I said, I think of it every day that I'm allowed to do it, sir. I can hardly tell you how much it means to me that I'm allowed to do this. I said to Mr. Nixon, what would it have meant to you to have been able, when you were already out of school, to have had lunch with your father pretty much any time you wanted? And he looked at me, and he took my arm. He took my arm. I remember he took my wrist, and he said, it would have meant the world. In this new book of yours, though, you really focus on, I think, something which is very undervalued about Nixon, and that is the degree to which he consciously worked at ending wars and at creating environments of peace rather than conflict. Talk a little bit about how you concluded that you wanted to write about Nixon and his role trying to make peace. Well, Mr. Nixon has said to me, and I think to many others as well, that he wanted to leave behind a generation of peace. Bear in mind, we had had a lot of wars in the post-war period. And Mr. Nixon said he was going to leave behind a generation of peace, or at least that was his goal. People scoffed and thought that that was just blowhard bragging. No, he meant it, and he did it. I think if he were president right now, he would be able to bring about peace between certain factions in the Middle East. But Mr. Nixon was very, very, very pessimistic about the Palestinians. Very. I mean, he respected Arabs. He respected the people who wanted, and people of any ethnicity, who wanted peace and who wanted to work hard. But for people who wanted to struggle for conflict and for war and for death, he had no respect for them at all. And he wanted to see them gone off the face of the earth. And largely he got to see that done. He certainly did not expect there to be what happened this past summer, whereby the Israelis were caught completely napping. A gigantic catastrophe of military intelligence, a catastrophe on a scale that's maybe never been equaled in the United States before, and are certainly, well, I don't know, I hope it never is equaled again. Nixon liked peace. His mother had said to him, I told you this, maybe I didn't tell you this, I think I told you this, I'm losing my mind, because I get very emotional when I talk about Nixon. I really loved him. I didn't just like him, I loved him. He had said, his mother had said to him, you will someday have the opportunity to do something for the children of God, Israel, and you will have a chance to do something dramatic for them. Please do not walk away from that chance. I think it's fair to say that after the shock of the surprise attack by Syria and Egypt against Israel, that Nixon's willingness to intervene and to airlift equipment and airlift capabilities was decisive in the survival of Israel. I think if he had not done that, they might have actually lost. I'm not sure they would have lost, Mr. Speaker, but they could possibly have lost. Mrs. Mayer, I'm sure you know this story very well, had out on her desk two suicide tablets for her to take. But she also was apparently prepped to use the atom bomb against the Arabs if they couldn't stop them. They had the atom bomb by then. And they were preparing to use it against, I don't know whether Cairo or Damascus or where they're planning to use it. But yes, they were planning to use it in some extremely dramatic way. Ironically, of course, she was from Milwaukee. So you had a prime minister of Israel who could speak in the American idiom as a native because she was. And I think that she had a pretty good relationship with Kissinger. And Kissinger in this period is, you know, Nixon's right arm. Well, I think Mr. Nixon had mixed feelings about Mr. Kissinger. He 
obviously admired him a great deal, trusted him a great deal. He made some quite funny jokes about Mr. Kissinger, but the one I remember best and most is he was talking about how Kissinger was complaining about somebody being a self-promoter, and Mr. Nixon laughed and laughed and said, can you imagine Henry calling someone else a self-promoter? And, of course, he was totally right about that. Sir, this was a man who said what he believed. He called balls and strikes. Uh, as a very close friend of mine said, he called balls and strikes, and he really wanted there to be a generation of peace. And he wanted it to be left in his hands, but there would be a generation of peace, and it was, and his accomplishments along those lines were astronomically wonderful. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It was interesting to me and came totally out of the blue. I would not have ever thought of this myself. But one of the most complicated and difficult things you got involved with involved the Nixon family taxes, which I think is just fascinating. I mean, how did that happen? Well, the people at the White House, especially Dave Gergen and his boss, Ray Price, I think had a somewhat exaggerated idea of my ability. And one night, we all worked very late at night. And one night, just before I was going home, Gergen and Price came to me and said that we have a really difficult task for you. Look here in this room. It was a very large conference room, and there are several good-sized banker's boxes, whatever they're called, that had tons and tons of files in them. And Gergen said, these boxes contain very important confidential documents. Do not show them to anyone under any circumstances, period. And have a look at them. See what you can do with them to make them come out all right for Mr. and Mrs. Nixon's helping them to get out of it, let's say, getting out of this. And I started reading, reading, and I saw something drastically wrong had happened. Mr. Nixon had been given advice by a man who I'm sure was a great man and a wonderful tax lawyer, but he had been told that he could take a deduction for gifts to the U.S. archives of his presidential papers 
and documents that he had worked on when he was president. In fact, that was not so. You could not take a deduction for that. And therefore, those deductions were invalid. And a large, large, large part of Mr. Nixon's income for tax purposes was made to be taxable. And this was totally a shock to Mr. Nixon. And he was flummoxed, and I remember very well at his farewell address. Boy, was that a, wow, was that a powerful event. Mr. Nixon said, right now I'm trying to figure out a way to pay my taxes. And he said it in a way which made it sound like he really meant it. And I think he did mean it. I don't think he was ever a wealthy man, maybe not even a well-to-do man. But he was caught totally flat-footed by having to pay those taxes. And I said, I think any one of us, even now, where money is very considerably devalued, would have a hard time if suddenly he or she were presented with a tax bill of a couple of million dollars more than he or she thought was forthcoming. It's interesting to me, though, that you went through it, you rendered your best honest judgment, and if anything, it seemed to strengthen Nixon's belief in you, rather than him getting mad at you for telling him he could not do something which was going to cost him a lot of money. He actually, I think, appreciated your honesty and sticking to the rules. I think he did, and uh, I don't know, something got very messed up there because I passed on a memo to Mr. Nixon, I think through Ray Price, saying that you used to have these two lawyers that are on loan to you from the bureaucracy, and they have told you that you're not going to have to pay tax. I, with all due respect, I think they're wrong. You are going to have to pay tax. I think you'd better take this to an attorney in the private sector and not to a government bureaucrat, although some government bureaucrats are fine people. And God Almighty, if I were in Nixon's shoes and all the burdens pressing upon me that Mr. Nixon did, and they were presented with a bill for several million dollars that I didn't think I was going to have to pay, I would have been absolutely beside myself, absolutely insane. But I think it's also a comment on how good a lawyer you were. And remember, Nixon himself, between vice president and then getting nominated eight years later, had handled Supreme Court cases and was considered, I think, an extraordinarily good lawyer in his own right. So I suspect he read your memo. It was and is brilliant. So I suspect he read your memo as a fellow lawyer and thought, this is the fact. And I think that's important. I'm afraid he did. <laughs> I wished I had been able to come up with something, but I just couldn't. I racked my poor old brain, young brain, and I couldn't, just couldn't think of it. And I remember calling Dave Gergen from my tiny, tiny, tiny house in Georgetown saying, Dave, I just can't come up with anything. And he said, oh, no, you're Ben Stein, you're Herb Stein's son, you can come up with anything. And I said, sir, I can't this time, I just can't. So I'd like to. And I had done some other work for him on the Watergate accusations, and it didn't matter. I could not beat the system, at least not that system. One of the stories that I never knew about, but you did, in fact, get one specific impeachment article dropped because you were able to convince them that they were just wrong. Yeah, I think it's the only one that was dropped out of the whole thing. Sir, I am really humbled by the fact that you read my book so carefully. I really, really am humbled because I've published a heck of a lot of books. I rarely, rarely get the comments from people who actually have read them and read them carefully enough to understand what was going on. And I'm humbled, as I say. Yeah, there was one item where it was alleged by the impeachment committee that Mr. Nixon had taken a bribe 
from a big hotel company, what we used to then call conglomerate, to somehow get various tax charges against him dropped. And in fact, that was all made up. He didn't, hadn't done anything even slightly, even slightly illegal about that. So he was in the clear and helped a lot in terms of my writing about it, that he really was in the clear. How did you feel when you watched his resignation speech and his, there was a very emotional moment. I felt horrible. I felt absolutely horrible. I mean, just incredibly horrible. I was there in the East Room where Mr. Nixon was giving his farewell address to the White House staff. My mother and father were sitting in the front row because Mr. Nixon knew that the Stein family didn't just like him, weren't just his employees. We loved him. We would have done anything for him. And my mother was sobbing on a scale. I've never seen her sob. Even now, it just drives me insane to think about it. I felt terrible. I felt terrible. I felt terrible. I felt terrible. I just felt terrible. I thought we were throwing away the best president we were ever going to get in my lifetime. And wow, the, those tears were tears of sorrow, grief, pain. Those were really pure tears, 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 tears. So a lot of tears in the Stein family when we're talking about Richard M. Nixon. Interestingly, Nixon leaves. You work briefly in the Ford White House. Then you go to the Wall Street Journal. But it's really a transition where you end up in Hollywood. Now, how does that happen? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. I went to work at the Wall Street Journal. Bob Bartley liked my writing about the political content of the media very, very much. He said, no one else is doing this. I'd like to hire you to do it. The pay was miserable. I mean, really terrible, but I did it anyway. And they sent me out to Hollywood quite a lot to interview people in the business. Powerful, powerful, big-time studio heads, big-time agents, big-time, I guess, let's see, I guess if there's such a thing, a big-time writer. And I learned a lot about how Hollywood worked, that Hollywood really was a one-trick pony in terms of politics. The people in Hollywood who were running Hollywood really were consistently always very left-wing people. And that wasn't a joke. That wasn't just a fantasy of us conservatives. It was really true. And it broke my heart that this supposition I'd had about how left-wing Hollywood was turned out to be completely factual. Clearly, it's a city that's overwhelmingly dominated by the left. And I think that's had a long-term impact on all of American culture, because the world we operate within is a world shaped in large part by people who are very far on the left. I think your high point, in a sense, in your interaction with Hollywood is the role of the economics teacher in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Did you ever see yourself as an actor, as a guy showing up in a movie? Never, ever, ever. Well, I had, had one small part in a movie called The Wild Life, where I played a manager of a surplus store. And it was a sequel to a movie called Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But I, I never thought I would become a well-known actor. You know, sir, I have been in something like 33 movies, hundreds of TV shows, and thousands, if you count, my own quiz show. I had a quite successful quiz show on Comedy Central called Win Ben Stein's Money. And I've done a lot of acting. I liked it a lot, very, very lot. I don't know how, I mean, God has been so good to me in so many ways. It's just amazing. But one of the main ways, I'd say the main way is letting me be an American. Second would be letting me have my wife, the world's finest being. 
And third would be letting me be in America. I mean, I just, every morning I wake up, I say, I'm in America. I cannot believe I'm in America. It's wonderful. It's just wonderful. You totally validate my decision many, many years ago to become a historian rather than a social scientist, because I always believed that life occurred in ways you could not figure out just by drawing lines on the chart. And if you think about your life and how it's evolved, you could never have sat down and planned it. Not in a billion years. So given the extraordinary range of your experience, if some young person walked up to you and said, what is your advice for how I should live my life? What would you tell them? I would say study something serious, as we just said, like history or economics. Study how to learn to think, and that would be law school. I'd say I learned more about how to think and analyze situations in law school than I did anywhere else. And save your money so that you're not always desperate about money. Go forward from there. But work, learn habits of hard work and learn habits of not taking the word of the media for anything and learn habits of bucking a trend. Don't expect that the trend is going to carry you. The trend will not carry you very far. The trend is your friend if you tell the truth. Okay, I want to thank you for joining me. I've enjoyed it so much, Newt. Well, I've just learned so much more about your diverse life and your extraordinary range of skills. That having you join me on Newt's World is terrific. And I think that our listeners are going to be very encouraged to get a copy of your new book, The Peacemaker, Nixon, The Man, President, and My Friend. This has been just terrific, Ben. You're very kind. I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you to my guest, Ben Stein. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Peacemaker, Nixon, The Man, President, and My Friend, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.